Welcome to the From Point A podcast. I'm your host, Brian Corbett. This is a show about government officials transitioning in and out of government. It's not about politics, policy, or regulation. This is a conversation focused on careers, the decisions we make and didn't make, and the consequences that we have to deal with. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Our guest today is Candy Wolf, who is the head of global government affairs at City. Prior to joining City, Candy held a number of different jobs in government, both at the Senate and in the administration. Most interestingly, Candy was the first woman to be named Assistant to the President for Legislative Affairs under President George W. Bush. Enjoy this conversation where Candy talks about everything from her first job and her interesting side jobs to her time with the administration and its city. So, Candy, thank you for joining me today. I appreciate it. I know it's been a long week. You've had your CEO here in town for Washington for some hearings, which I'm sure have been uh, exhausting, to say the least. Uh, that's an understatement. You sort of forget when hearings happen that by the time the hearing happens, it's sort of anticlimactic, because at that point, we've done three months of prep work. So it, it is exhausting, and I'm looking forward to uh, a couple of weeks of a break here. Well, I haven't seen any negative articles, so I assume you and your team did a, a great job. So success is exactly that. If uh, we weren't front and center, then uh, we were successful. <laughs> well, well, thanks again. I have to say, Candy, as I was preparing to, to talk to you and, and was doing some research, there was one thing that really jumped out at me, and, and it's really... Uh, in context of your time here in D.C., which is you were a math major in college. And I always thought of D.C. as a math-free zone. So I'm very curious how a math major from Connecticut kind of wound up here. So I grew up in a really small town in Connecticut, a little town called Canaan, Connecticut. And those in New York often come up to Litchfield County, although I had no appreciation for New York. Like it was a really big deal to go show up at a, at a city. And uh, 3,600 people. My high school was hundred and 41 kids out of six towns. So it was a regional high school. And my dad uh, had, and now my brother runs, uh, a plumbing company. So it was plumbing, heating, and air conditioning. And at the time, I said, well, I'm going to go to college and kind of looked around. And so I ended up at Mount Holyoke. It was about an hour and a half from, from home. And my mother had gone to a women's college. So she was pushing me to look at a women's college. And my father thought, that it was Catholic school because it was Mount Holyoke. He was pleasantly surprised when he showed up and discovered that there were signs on the bathroom door that said men when you switched it over if somebody was visiting. So he had a completely different viewpoint afterwards. But anyway, I think he thought I was going to a convent. So I had gone to college and I was a math major. Uh, I was also poli-sci, but I found that I was better at math and it was logical. And if it wasn't subjective, you could end up with better grades. Like, I knew I could end up with a better GPA if I just stuck with something that was analytical and it wasn't subjective around, well, what are your thoughts about Latin American politics and, you know, whatever sort of the topic of the, of the day was. And I was not a great writer. Like, I could, I could write a paper, but it wasn't my strength. So math was just something I liked and enjoyed. And I thought long and hard about being an actuary. And I applied for and got a job at Travelers, long before Travelers was part of City. Um, and at that point, I thought about it, and I'm like, you know what? There is no way I'm going to be a green eye shade person. <laughs> I cannot sit in a room and, and really be an actuary. And I thought about the number of other tests I'd have to take, and then said, no, I'm going to go to law school. And I had applied also to law school. And so um, 
math was sort of the path to the logic. Like it was very straightforward as a way of thinking. And it made a lot of sense for me to end up in law school, not because I was doing the math equations, but it was just how you think about the problem sets and the logic and get to an answer. So once you got to Washington, all those logical and math skills you learned, you just threw out the window? Yes. Given the way this town works? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, but I, how you apply the problem and kind sure. of thinking through the reasoning all made right. sense for law school. Um, and I and also, you went to GW, so you came to Washington. And, I came and to, you I, went to I GW purposely wanted to come to GW or at least to DC because I'd done an internship my junior year of college. Okay. And here in DC, and I worked for Lowell Weicker, one of the former senators from Connecticut, and uh, he was in his third term. And I just really wanted to see what Washington was like, and I fell in love with it and I haven't left. And you, once you graduated from GW, you went to Aiken Gump Law Firm. But it seems like, given that internship, that you sort of had the political bug the whole time I you did. were at Aiken. As and soon were, as were I you got kind in. of itching to leave once you got there? Or? It wasn't that I was itching to leave. I think I, for Aiken Gump, it was the public policy group. And so it was really their lobbying group. And I had concentrated in tax law. So where my math background kind of came back into play was I was interested in tax at the time and it was post the 86 tax act so I graduated in 89 so it was post 86 there was a lot going on in the tax area and I'd done internship and so I was doing tax policy and what always fascinated me and still does to this day is the intersection of the politics and the policy like how how does a bill become a law how do we change laws how does it begin to influence people's behavior and so I'd gone to Aiken Gump, and I had some great work, and I was a fourth-year associate. And then someone came to me and said, you know, there's a real opportunity to go to the Hill. It was in 1990, well, it was the end of 92, 93, and Congress had turned over. And so there was just a lot of openings and some opportunity, and there was a tax council position that was opening up on the Hill. And it was for Senator Malcolm Wallop, and I was like, who is that? Right. And, you know, well, I did know enough because right. I was doing, you know, policy work and I'm like hmm Wyoming sure why, why not, not? <laughs> um and so he used to be on finance for a couple of terms and then went to the armed services committee and it was during uh Reagan's tenure that he was on armed services and focused on a lot of the arms race and issues and associated there and then he thought he was going to run for re-election in 94 and so he wanted to go back on finance and at that point he needed a tax council so last minute I applied it was sort of almost through the process and lo and behold I got the job and I thought well you know I might as well try it because I thought I'd go for two years and do what everyone does in Washington and we all hear about the revolving door but I thought, you know, I'll go do this and I'll get a better understanding of how tax policy works and then I can come back to a law firm. And I just never went back. <laughs> so you were with Senator Wallop for two. two two years and then you made a move at that point and you went into the Republican le- Senate Republican leadership. Yeah, I sort of had to make a move because uh, Wallop decided he wasn't going to run for re-election. <laughs> and uh, so at that point, you know, you have one of those jobs that's just going to end. We had a great two years, so I learned a lot, and it was uh, 1993, and at the time, it was health care for President Clinton. It was uh, tax issues and the BTU tax and the deficit reduction packages, and so there was a lot going on. 
uh, and that gave me an opportunity to meet you know, more of the folks in leadership. And so I, I wanted to stay. But I also had one fun time because Wallop was checking out, and it was pre-gift rule restrictions, and they could all go play golf. And he was a huge golfer, and I never had a better golf game in my life. <laughs> it was 93 and 94 and playing every course that was sort of in D.C. because they wanted someone to go and talk about tax issues. And so I got to play Robert Chen Jones not long after it opened. You go to congressional. But anyway, at that point, I needed to go find a, another position, and so I went into to leadership. And you, you, within leadership, you had two different jobs, right? You worked for the steering committee, and then you moved over to the Republican Policy Conference. And, and talk a little bit about, for people who don't know, sort of what that means and, and how that set you up for what you did later in your career when you moved over to the administration. So back in the early 90s, the Senate Republican Steering Committee was made up of the conservative members of the Senate who were looking to have sort of major reforms and, and really were kind of trying to push some policy in initiatives. And Wallop, at the time that he retired, was chairman. So that, and it was a small staff, and they needed, at the time there was some turnover, and they needed a legal counsel. So I went in kind of as a legal counsel, which really just meant you were the policy person uh, to help on the issues. And what was fascinating was that the makeup of the steering committee executive leadership were all of the members who ultimately became the Republican leaders in the Senate when the turnover occurred in 96, really, 94, 95, 96. And so as the Republicans in the Senate, and at the time, Senator Dole left to go take on you know, a presidential race, a lot of these leaders started from the steering committee started moving into the leadership. So they started to get from steering committee into the whip and the policy committee and conference and others. And so it just opened up a, a variety of opportunities. And, uh, and so as soon as, at the time, it was Larry Craig moved over to policy committee, I went after like a year and a half from steering to policy and became the deputy staff director for the Republican policy. And what it gave you is, you know, you were a mile wide and an inch deep on anything, but you learned a lot about how the process worked, and there was a lot of policy agenda that was getting pursued. And, you know, just if you look back at the time frame, and it was 95, 96, 97, 98, there's just a lot happening. So it's just really interesting to be on the ground as changes were being made and you had to give advice, and then you had to make sure that the policy papers were put together, and you kind of got to see the the whole leadership in action. So by this point, you've come a long way from Connecticut to D.C., um, but I want to go back for one second before we go forward. So what was your very first job that you had? Um, my very first job was working for my parents and my dad okay. in his plumbing shop. And uh, every Saturday, I was expected to get to the, the business, which is about an hour, an hour, excuse me, like a mile from our house. And I had to be there Saturday mornings, and I had to answer the phones from 8 in the morning till noon and handle any client, you know, calls that were coming in, customer calls that were coming, and making sure, sure that those were all done. very nice. Oh, yeah. And usually somebody calls. coming in on Saturday, you know, <laughs> like. <laughs> and then I filed, and then I would work summers. And so, you know, and my siblings have still, we all did it. We right. all had some you know, expectation that this was a job. I moved up um, 
in the summers when I finally got my license, I got to deliver pipe and I would cut pipe and fittings and I could go find them and, and put them in the car and I just wanted to drive around. You know, that was more fun than sitting in the office and having to file a bunch of <laughs> paperwork. <laughs> and my dad always said, you know, you really need to know how to fix the toilet and hang gutter. And, you know, he would have different things that he thought that we should all know and we all figured out and learned how to do it and so I can still you know generally figure out how to unstick my uh, kitchen sink and a few other things that (laughs) you know I remember from those days (laughs) but but I also read that you have kind of a quasi family business today as well that you're involved with through your your husband Mark and his family so you you had the plumbing business growing up but I also have read that you are involved with the Christmas tree business today yes yeah, so um, when I married my husband his uh, his parents had what they thought was going to be a hobby and it turned into a large enterprise that's uh, now I think the largest in Loudoun County for and one of the few remaining um, cut your own Christmas tree farms. And, uh, you know, I volunteered because it was a way to sort of spend time with Mark. Even before we got married, we were dating, and I was out cutting down trees and helping, um, you know, sell them at Christmas time. And, uh, and now we still go out. My uh, father-in-law passed away about 10 years ago, and my brother-in-law runs the business now. Uh, but we all volunteer our labor and go out. And I can still remember days when I was doing it and working for President Bush and uh, or even Vice President Cheney. And I get a call and it'd be the vice president like on a Saturday and I'm out trying to take money right. <laughs> and collect. And I'd have to go somewhere and have a call. And uh, and I tell him, sir, I'm selling Christmas trees today. <laughs> and he kind of chuckled. But, um, you know, it's just it was a really great way to get outside of D.C. And you know, at the holiday time, do something completely right. different. Uh, and I just, I like being outside and, and interacting with people. And so it's still fun to go do it. I have a little less time to be able to do it, but it's, uh, you know, it's it's still a great way to get ready for the Can holiday season. Can you use season. some city uh, debt financing to help underwrite the <laughs> business? or? Well, I end up now, I end up taking a lot of the credit cards, so I see which cards come across. Okay, How many are city? Data. You're, <laughs> you're many, focused yeah, on the data. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and everything now is, uh, we went from cash to um, the old credit card machines to now you can use Square pretty easily. So technology has definitely it's made a, it easier for a small Snickers business gap to operate. Too. Yes. <laughs> so you mentioned Vice President Cheney. So Eventually, you decided to leave the Senate, where you had been for a number of years, and go work for Vice President Cheney. How did that transition happen? Did you work on the campaign? Because I always find it interesting how people line up and, and get that first job in an administration. It can, it can be hard to navigate that transition. Yeah, and um, in 2000, before the election, so would have been yeah, around June, I got asked um, to come over and be policy director for the platform at the RNC, and Mitch Bainwall was running the platform at the time. He was Connie Mack guy, still around town, as we all know, and Mitch asked me to come over, and so I had worked with the campaign through the platform, and so at that point, I had met a few few people, and then I went back to the policy committee, and then I got a call, um, Zio Jackley, who went back into the White House, and I had known for a while on the Hill, uh, Z had called me and said he was going over to be the Senate liaison for 
the uh, transition. He needed some help because we had to kind of help come up with names and do some work with some of the nominees. And if you recall, I mean, the transition was very short, right? very, very, very short. And so he called and I said, um, yeah, let me check about a leave of absence. And I had been taking too many absences. So it was a all in. And I said, yes, I'll go over and, and work the transition. And at that point, you know, once we kind of got through the the legal (laughs) issues um, and there, in fact, was a full on transition that led to the opportunity because I was already in in, and Vice President Cheney at the time was managing the transition. Uh, They wanted someone to uh, work in the Senate and Nancy Dorn was running Ledge Affairs for Vice President Cheney. And Nancy said, I need someone who knows the Senate because it was already going to be tight and Vice President Cheney was a creature of the House. He wasn't a creature of the Senate. And if he's listening to this, he'll still probably chuckle because he had this, you know, it seemed like it was a foreign body. What is the Senate? How do the processes work? And and that was sort of my expertise, which is just understanding enough of how the Senate works and the processes by being in that leadership structure. And so that was really what created the opportunity to go work for him. So after three years working for Vice President Cheney, which must have been an, an amazing experience, you actually decided to, to leave and go into the private sector, uh, join the Washington Council Ernst & Young. And then a year later, you came back into the administration working for President Bush. So why'd you decide to leave and why'd you decide to come back? <laughs> uh yeah, it was a really quick one-year uh, stint. Um, three years is a long time to work in any administration, uh, and credit to those that that were able to do it for a full eight years. But um, I had two young kids. They were one and three at the time that uh, we st- started. And, you know, economically, my husband was working, I was working, but I kind of reached the point where it was time to spend more time with them. And honestly, to try to, you know, help the uh the balance sheet mm-hmm. uh in order to uh not feel like we were going to go it, y- right. you know have to live off of the 401k etc so it was a great great job but um i do recall and and i think this is true um you know in any of the jobs in the administration when we first came in andy card sat down with everybody and said you know the hardest decision you can make is knowing when to leave and you know it it was that kind of situation where i'm like you know i'm I love what I'm doing. I love working for Vice President Cheney, but I'm getting distracted and, you know, it's probably time for me to go figure something else out. Um, Coming back, I expected to be out a little longer, but I also knew um, that there was going to be turnover with the Ledge Affairs position over at the White House. And um, David Hobbs was leaving. Uh, Nick Calio had, was the first uh, head of Ledger Affairs. David Hobbs was the next. And David said, you know, I'm probably going to go at the end of 2004. Uh, I may put your name in. I said, well, you know, we don't know where that's going to go. I left at the, end of 2003, at the end of 2003. So there was a whole year in there. And then Andy Card called me and asked me to come over. And I thought, okay, we're going to do an interview. And he basically offered me the job right there and said, you know, will you be willing to start? And I had to give it a little bit of thought. I said, well, let me check with my husband again and see if he's okay with me going back in because I knew it would be an inordinate amount of time. But look, in, in a world in which I worked on the Hill and I was a staffer, I always looked at the White House Ledge Affairs job as, wow, that would be like the greatest job. I didn't really know a lot of other jobs, but you know, at the time, and you're just kind of starting out, you're like, wow, that's, that's like this great position. And so, um, I was honored to be asked. I was, uh, I was nervous, really actually kind of scared about it. I knew it was going to be a reach 
for me. I wasn't sure, you know, was I qualified? Could I do it? You have all those doubts. Um, but I didn't have a doubt that at the end of the day, I was going to end up taking it. And so I did. And when you came back in, you made history. You were the first woman to have the assistant to the president for legislative affairs role. In the 50-year history of that position, you were the first to have it. So congrats to you, and uh, that's that's quite a, a recognition. Yeah, I really had no appreciation for that point. Like It was literally the, the ask was in, and I hadn't really thought about the fact that I was the first woman. It was just, hey, this opportunity is in front of me. I'm going to take it. And then afterwards, somebody said, you know, you're the first. And I went back and I double checked. I'm like, oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> so it is cool. <laughs> but so you made history in that regard. You also have another distinguishing characteristic, which is you were one of the few people to work for Vice President Cheney and then separately to work for President Bush as an assistant to the president. Some people jointly have both titles, but they may work more for one for the vice president and not the president. But you actually had at distinct periods of time worked for each of them. So talk a little bit about what they were like as bosses. I mean, we've all read different books and we've heard different things. From your view, what, what were they like as bosses in terms of style and management? Um, well, first, hands down, two of the greatest bosses I could work with. And all credit to my CEO currently and my direct boss, all of whom I <laughs> greatly like and, and appreciate their style. But you know, it was an honor and a privilege to work for, for both of those men. And um, with Vice President Cheney, it was always, you know, his first learning how the process worked from the executive branch perspective. You know, he had such a knowledge base, and I'd go in and give him a policy issue, you know, and we talk about some issue that was coming up, and we were doing a lot at the time around budget, tax, um, energy, and <laughs> And he'd be three steps ahead of me. Like, I knew I had to go in so prepared because I'd say something and his mind would go to the, well, this is how the votes are going to go and this is where the process is going to go. And I hadn't even gotten to, I may have gotten to step two, but he was at step three. And so it was always um, a fun challenge to just make sure I was up to speed and you just wouldn't be really smart to go in there and, and be able to talk to him. Um, the same was true for President Bush. For President Bush, it was a lot of the issues that we ended up dealing with, you know, were so tough because I had the second term. So it was all Iraq, and it was terrorist financing, it was Social Security, and it was immigration. And these were just, they were challenging, they're still challenging issues, and they were clearly challenging issues then. And then you're in the second term which, you know, has its own set of, of issues associated with it. And so, you know, I think with, with President Bush, he always had a laugh and he always had your back. And you knew that he was incredibly loyal. It was just an honor to work for both of them. You mentioned a number of the challenges you had in the your time with President Bush. What was the most difficult dynamic or issue that you actually had to, to deal with? What was the, the hardest thing to, to navigate? Well, honestly, at the beginning, the hardest thing to navigate is the White House and the personalities <laughs> um, and everybody having a little bit of a, a fiefdom and making sure that the views were being heard. So it was getting comfortable that I could be assertive and that I was confident enough in what I was saying. And so that took a little while, to, to be honest. I think that was really my learning curve, which was knowing that I did 
have an understanding of what the process was, that I had enough information. And I, I tend to be a person that likes to have all the information possible before you make a decision. And I had to learn that you have to be able to make decisions without everything necessarily in front of you. And that was sort of my growth spurt was getting to that place where I could say, no, I think this is the outcome. This is the risk and really be able to take information in and and be able to then provide it in a way that was going to be useful to that policy debate. And um, there were a couple situations where, you know, the internal conversations were pretty tough, and you got to sit there and defend it or you get yelled at. Right. And, you know, now internally getting yelled at is really not that difficult. It, at the end of the day, it was a good experience because then you go to the Hill and you get yelled at anyway because the job that you're in is to be told by the Hill that whatever idea you're trying to put forward is some crazy idea and it won't work. And then you go back into the White House and you're trying to come up with a plan for how you can get the policy through or is there some things we have to change and it's that back and forth. So I've learned to have a better um, shield and I learned to not take things personally and to just be stronger and more confident around, you know, how do you present that information? But ultimately, you did leave the administration. I did. Um, you, after, after a great term of service, and you wound up at City a few years later. But talk about what you initially did when you left, because you went to a law firm for a couple of years before joining Citigroup. And I'd be curious if um, sometimes when people leave government and when I talk with them, I say, look, maybe go somewhere first and then your dream job will come down the road. If you wait for the dream job to come, it may not come. What was your strategy when you were leaving the White House and how did you, you think about the next steps? So I didn't have much of a strategy. Um, I was very concerned on the ethics and making sure that I wasn't looking at anything uh, so I didn't have to recuse myself from any activities because there was so much that was still happening in the administration. And so I worked right up until the last day and then didn't even think about where I was going to go. I just knew that it was time to go. Now my kids really were getting to a point um, where I needed to uh, spend some more time with them, wanted to spend some more time with them. Uh, and I had lost creativity. You know, there's only so many proposals that you can do, like Iraq resolutions, that you can think about, well, how many of these budget proposals, how many different ways can you come at the same problem? <laughs> and so um, I was, had made it clear that after three years I was leaving, I just left. Then I started to look. And at that point, it was, you know, what's out there? And law firms were familiar to me. And I, I wanted to do advocacy, but I also wanted to dig into the policy a little bit. And, and since I'm a lawyer, it gave me the opportunity to go work in a law firm as a lawyer. I uh, went to Hogan, uh, Hogan and Hartson, uh, then became Hogan and Lovells. And they have a public policy shop, and it was just a great opportunity to work on a lot of different issues. And that's what I did, because I'm pretty broad. You know, I'd lost my specifics on tax and all that other stuff that I'd done, you know, ages ago. And so, so the law firm seemed like, to your point, it was, it was a great. I loved it. Um, I was there for three years. I wasn't really expecting to leave. And, uh, and then an opportunity presented itself, and that was City. The person who was heading legislative affairs of the Washington office of City at the time was Nick Calio. Nick had left, um, and it was post-crises. But Nick, of course, had run Ledge Affairs for President Bush. And so it was, it was kind of funny. And there was a number of um, White House folks who were still at City at the time. So I went up, and um, I wasn't sure I wanted to go to a, either a bank or to have a sort of a single client. And I kind of went back and forth on that. But uh, there was a really fantastic person who was running HR at City, And he convinced me that a single client with a lot of issues would be just as, as rewarding and challenging as a lot of clients with a single issue. <laughs> and so um, 
I was sort of convinced that it was worth giving it a shot and and I knew it would be also another reach experience for me and you joined at a time post financial crisis but when all of the dot frank and regulation was starting to hit the industry so so talk a little bit about um, your role at city and and what you you focus on yeah I mean you know Brian you handled a lot of the financial issues and sort of knew all of what the crises was about. I walked into City thinking a lot of that was done. <laughs> and, and I think, and how wrong was I? <laughs> you know, you look back, you're like, well, a lot of Dodd-Frank's done, so it's regulatory. I didn't have the regulatory agenda. My agenda was going to be global. So it was a global footprint. Um, and it was sort of managing through what residual issues were left well. Lo and behold, by 2011, there's still a lot of residual issues and a lot of policies. And so um, what I really ended up doing was um, beginning to set up a strategy around, you know, what are the issues that we're most focused on uh, in the U.S.? And then I've spent the last uh, five, six years now building out an international footprint. Uh, There was one. But what it was clear is that more and more governments, right, not just the U.S., but across the globe, particularly as a result of, you know, the financial crises, more interest by governments around regulation and around how to regulate banks. And so it really meant having a global strategy on a lot of issues. Otherwise, you end up with arbitrage, you end up with a lack of harmonization. And so it was critically important for someplace like City, as I learned that, you know, we're doing business in, you know, around 100 countries. And so you got to worry about what 100 countries policies are. And, you know, having some type of, of strategy that would begin to look at not only the regulatory agenda, but cyber. I mean, what's the number one issue that's affecting banks these days? Cyber, cybersecurity, cyber risks. So, uh, tax is a big issue, data, data privacy. There's so many more issues that were out there. So a lot of the early focus was around Dodd-Frank and regulatory, and now it's really pivoted to a lot of these other issues that um, you have to think of, of banks as data companies. And so it's uh, it's been really fascinating, and I would say, you know, never boring. Right. <laughs> so uh, uh, you've done a number of different things in Washington, had some incredible jobs. Uh, and you're now in the role of mentoring people who are looking to emulate what you've done or are looking to make different transitions in their careers. I mean, what type of advice do you give people who are transitioning from government or people who are looking to, quote-unquote, succeed in Washington in their careers? Uh, how do you talk to people about those issues? Yeah, you know, it's, um, it was something just to say, when I first started out, I had no appreciation for sort of the role that I could play, you know, I don't want to say I was humble because I don't think it was being humble. I think I just didn't really understand that the position that I was able to achieve was something that people looked up to, and in particularly women. And so um, once that became more apparent, I, I dedicated more of my time and effort to trying to do, you know, to mentor, to network, to be available if someone called and said, you know, I'd like to get together because I do want to understand, you know, what some options might be if I'm coming off of the Hill or I'm coming out of the administration or inside city, I want to, you know, I want to get more into policy. You know, what are some options? And and really trying to sit down and spend time and as well as be part of what we have for various networks. And I think, you know, what is 
beneficial about the private sector is that there are networks that are set up, you know, in order to have women, and particularly in financial services, advance through both city, but just sort of, you know, financial services writ large, and we've got structures and networks that that are in place, and it's understanding those. Some of the effort, and some of our colleagues certainly, uh, you know, on the Hill have been doing this, which is trying to create similar networks in the public sector, because I don't think the public sector has as much built in, in terms of being able to give women leadership skills, networking skills, making sure that um, there's the same development opportunities that you might get in the private sector and apply it to the public sector. So I've actually spent some time trying to work with folks around, you know, what are some of those opportunities so that there are other women who are in the public sector that have the opportunity to go into the private sector and can have a skill set. Because we all get asked when we take these jobs in the private sector, particularly corporations, well, what experience do you have working in a corporation? And I was like, well, do you consider the bureaucracy of the federal government, a large corporation? Right. Do you consider the office? And so, you know, trying to get some of those leadership skills and really focused on them and helping some of these women think about how those skills really are translatable right. so that you can speak like you've been in a corporation and show that the skills are transferable so that you have an opportunity to actually get into the, the corporate and world. And that, that's, that I have found is so true uh, generally, which is, the private sector tends to discount management experience in government. Right. They don't view it as applicable to their mm-hmm. business. And for people to get over that hump is a real challenge. It's, it's hard to do. It's hard. And, you know, it surprised me. It's, a, it's hard. Now, I think, you know, in the government affairs space, it's obviously a lot easier because I'm more interested in hiring people who have government ex- affairs experience than necessarily corporate experience. Um, and I do recognize that there's a learning curve. But to discount the management, you know, I think is um, something that we've got to work. And there's, and there's some groups now that are spending a lot more time trying to, you know, understand how we can get over that discount factor. But also, the flip side's true. There's an effort now to spend time with women in corporations to make sure that they're more politically attuned. Because I think, you know, politics inside a company is equally <laughs> as relevant. And so having corporate women getting more familiar around political engagement is a way to help them grow. And so it's got to work on both ends. But um, I think it's making sure, too, that as I work with, with women either coming off the Hill or administration to give them my guidance is around be confident in yourself understand your skill set and help them think about how they can present themselves with those leadership qualities that tend to be the characteristics that companies look for. You've mentioned this idea of, of networks a yeah. couple of times, and nobody wants to be perceived as kind of a social climber or someone who's just out there to meet people for the sake of, of, of doing it. But networks are a key component to how you succeed at your current job and how you potentially find the next one. And you've been in a number of different networks over your career. How do you kind of curate that? How do you stay in touch with people? Are there any things that you do over time that you found to be effective in maintaining these relationships? Yeah, it's, um, and I have to remind myself, and I honestly do this pretty much every year, because uh, in a position I'm in now where there's a lot of global travel, you can get very disconnected fairly quickly. You know, it's being strategic, and you don't have to go to every event possible. I try to make sure I've got one to two a week kind of on my schedule, whether it's a coffee, whether it's an, uh, you know, 
um, a dinner, even if it's a group event, it's something where I can be out and I can be meeting people and I can be talking. And it's hard to find the time. You talked earlier, you have two daughters at the time when, when you were in and out of government, they were young. I assume they're at college age now, but still finding that balance between work, family, the travel. And we haven't even talked about what you like to do when you're not at work or not with your family. What are some of your hobbies? So finding a way to balance all that is, is really tricky too. How have you sought to achieve that? Well, probably poorly. <laughs> I think we all say, you know, I certainly don't look, I certainly do not take the position that, um, that I've, I've done it all right. Um, you know, my, my focus has always been around my family. And I think that to me was what anchors and, and anchors who I am. And so I always made an effort, uh, to spend as much time with them as I could. And once I left the white house, there was a little bit more flexibility to be able to do that. Uh, you know, the white house years, you'd be nine to it, it was seven to nine, 10, 11. And so, you know, they would be in bed and I could try to see them on the weekends. Um, after that it was get home and they had their own schedule. So it was easy enough. Just make sure I'm home for dinner. You know, I always wanted to make sure there was somebody home for dinner, whether my husband or I, and they had a family, you know, meal. And so that was my, sort of my focus. And then I try to fit a few things in between. And, um, you know, is it the right balance? You know, I think there was always criticism, uh, I would hear that I didn't network enough. Um, and some of that may be true. Some of that I don't feel like it really hurt at the end of the day. I kind of emphasized you can network a lot and have qual- quantity or you can focus on quality. And I was more interested in the quality because I figured the networking part that helped me do my job, which was the part around, you know, how do you go advocate? I could do that with policy. Because I found that when I was at the White House, if you were sort of smarter than the other person and you understood the policy better, you could get your arguments through and you could, you know, make a case. And today, it's not about who you know. It's about can you make the case? Because that case has to be justified when you go to have a vote. And it's just not enough to say, well, President Bush asked me for your vote. That doesn't sell. You know, you have to go in and say, President Bush would like your vote, but here's your, you know, the following issues and why. And um, and so... I ended up, I think, as I looked at the time, tried to focus on quality and just having some really solid friends, good relationships, really built up the people that I thought would be supportive, you know, in this town. So, Candy, we've talked a lot about where um, you've succeeded during your career and the different jobs you've had. But talk about one time where things didn't quite work out the way you wanted or you were faced with a a difficult decision that made you reassess the path you were on and and how you uh, adjusted. Yeah, you know, I think, Brian, there's always, um, in any career path, there's always some challenges, and um, I think you learn from them, and that's really the the value of, of those challenges is how you get through them and how you face them and what you can learn from them. So for me, I, I think the real sort of defining moment, if you want to call it, from a challenge, um, I'd sort of gotten all these different jobs and been able to do things, and, and then I, as we went through this, I, t- I took this job with President Bush. And I can just remember, as you asked me around some of the challenges, it was a tough first year because I really had to learn to assert myself. And there was just a lot of different things happening inside the White House. And I wasn't sure I was sort of reading the politics right. And, you know, I'm not the person, I don't consider myself somebody with really sharp elbows. So I wasn't going to get in there and try to assert myself. 
And about a year into the to the job, year and a half, um, you know, Andy Card left, and and uh, and then Josh Bolton came in, and Josh was restructuring things, and and everybody's taking a look. But all at that time, there's a lot of stories that were getting leaked, and a lot of rumors about who was going to stay in their position and who wasn't. And I would read more and more around, okay, ledge affairs, and there was some people from the Hill and um, some members who were talking, saying you need somebody who's got more profile, uh, you know, better known, can deal with some of these senior members. And, you know, it really undermines your confidence pretty quickly. And, and you don't know what's happening. And I had to make a judgment call, and I had to sort of say, you know, do I sit here and ride this out, knowing what happens in Washington, which is sort of the chip-chip away in, in the storyline, or do you go in and, you know, sort of just present it, whatever the, whatever the outcome is, because I clearly serve at the pleasure of the president. And if it's not going the way he needs it and wants it to go, then we just need to know that. And so I made the decision and kind of got my nerve up. And I went in and I sat down um, with Josh Bolton and said, you know, Josh, these stories are going on. I said, you know, what do you guys want? You know, where do you want me to be? And, and he said at the time, he goes, well, we were thinking, the president and I were thinking maybe you could go to you would run DPC, Democrat, the Domestic Policy Council. And I thought, because I'm a policy person, I said, well, let, let me think about that. Um, and I came back to him and I said, you know, honestly, no. Um, I'm much more of an economic person. So the economic issues interest me. The domestic policy issues are just not kind of where my heart lies. I just, I, I don't see it. So, you know, if, if that's sort of the option you know, just let me know. I'll send in my resignation. But, you know, I want the stories to stop. And he came back and, you know, to Josh's credit, to President Bush's credit, they said, um, no, we want you to stay in the position you're in. And then the story shut down. And it was like, and all of a sudden, it was, you know, 180 degree turn and everybody had your back. You know, but it took... And that was sort of the learning, and I tell women as well, you know, those are the hard ones when you'd rather just sit in your office and put your head down and have no one ask you anything and hope it's going to go away, and you realize that there's just certain times that you just have to own it, and you have to go in, and you have to get the nerve up. And it was such a learning experience for me. I mean, it was tough, and I would say I was in tears. There were times when I'm like, I don't want to do this, and, you know, I don't want to go through this, and then you you go and you do it, and you feel stronger for it. And, and it was such a, a, a moment. And then I moved, you know, and there was so much stuff going on right. and you move on in the White House. But when I look back and I look at it and say, I think that was really a fundamental part in my changing in my character and giving me more confidence about what I could do and the willingness to kind of, you know, you're not always going to be right. You're not always, y there may be things that go wrong. There's decisions you're going to make. Um, there's people who are going to fire you. And it's all part of, what you do and you, you can't take it personally you just got to go in and say there may be circumstances that you know that present themselves and maybe better not to be there and you learn you learn from it it's a great lesson because i've seen a number of times too where no one's going to be your advocate if you're not willing to do it yourself exactly and it, it's hard to step yeah. up and do that sometimes yeah. sometimes it's hard and i think that's one of the challenges women have right we don't always want to be our own advocate we like to you know, kind of be everybody else's advocate but yourself. So last question, as we, we look down the road, you've been at City for a number of years, if we chat again in another five or even ten years, <laughs> what, what, what's... Where am I going yeah, next? Yeah, what's, what's next for you? 
I've never had that I know what I'm going to be when I grow up kind of thing. Um, I don't know. You know, my kids are graduating. I love my job, so I'm not looking to leave anytime soon. I think it'll be a totally career, different career change. I think I'd love to teach in the future. I think that would be something that would interest me later on in retirement. Um, so, you know, I don't see staying in the advocacy business, you know, all that long. I think it'll be not all that long. Like when I'm done, that'll be that'll be all and and um, maybe explore um, and maybe do some teaching. I also sense an entrepreneurial streak. You had the, the plumbing business, yeah. the Christmas tree farm business. It seems like some invest, some side investing could be in the future as well. Yeah, after we get done paying for college. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, Candy, thank you so much for joining me today. It was great to see you. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Brian. This is fun. This show was produced by Sarah Langauer.